This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? As I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven. Hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found a bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America, on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky Speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the Speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, It was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stock-and-bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time in the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week, transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento. Two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown L.A. from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in the air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> now I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. 
They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now Center would like to say, who cares, get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, 90 knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two, zero knots on the ground. And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? <laughs> I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> And I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die. They must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter, and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. And his best innocent voice L.A. Center, Aspen 3-0, have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 3-0, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency <laughs> all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. <laughs> For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice, and that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Shule telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. 
And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's time for our better health care at lower cost series sponsored by the great folks at the Stetson family office and our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on an Australian immigrant that you likely don't know named Dr. Peter Farrell but you'll be glad to have met him. I ended up doing a PhD because I thought I wanted to be an academic which I did for about 10 years until I got sick of academia. You know, it's a bit like bureaucracy, that which turns energy into solid waste. And the further up you go within the hierarchy, the more time you spend on administrative stuff and the less you spend doing what you're trained to do. And you get into politics. And sometimes the politics is such that it impacts what you're trying to do. It's a cancer. What was good in my case is that Baxter approached me. A $10 billion healthcare company. And said, hey, look, we want someone to set up and run R&D in Southeast Asia. So I went to live in Tokyo. A guy that was working with me said, uh, look, there's this guy, his name is Colin Sullivan, and he's treating snoring sickness with a reverse vacuum cleaner. And I mean, I kind of rolled on my back like a sprayed cockroach. I said, what? said, snoring, well, you know, it's the butt of jokes. And he said, no, no, go see this guy, seriously. So I sat down with him and he said, I hear you're a skeptic. I'm going to show you a video. And this is long before YouTube. He popped this tape in and there's this guy like a sumo wrestler on his back and a big bulbous mass and going. <laughs> and he said, that's an apnea which means without breath. The guy's upper airway is closed. Of course, gravity, your tongue goes back in your pharynx. And then if you've got a lot of fatty tissue around there, you'll pull it closed. Which causes the snoring as oxygen struggling to make its way to the lungs. And then what wakes you is the brain detects oxygen level, it's falling. And so once the brain goes, holy sh you know, the oxygen level's too low for life to be supported. So the brain and the heart have to be protected because you've got literally seconds, like a minute, 90 seconds, you're basically dead if the brain and the heart are starved of oxygen. So you get this fright response. You've got to get more blood into both organs. Healthy blood is almost all oxygen. And everything else gets shut down acutely. And it could be four or 500 times a night. You think that's good for you? Actually, it isn't. 
So what happens is that the whole of the body's biochemistry gets completely screwed up. And the longer you keep going with this, obviously the worse it is. And at some point you'll reach the point where it's irreversible. Then you're really in deep shit. And, you know, when I went to see this guy Sullivan and he showed me um, this guy going, he said, do you think that's good for him? And I said, hmm. I said, let's move to the next question, can we? Anyway, then he slapped this Darth Vader mask on this guy, and it was a bespoke mask. He had a Swiss engineer making these masks individually. And these masks were like, you know, you'd put it on and you'd say, still leaking? How's that? Still leaking? And this was the guy's insight. Nobody liked to have this full face mask on. And Colin said, you know what? I think we can do it with just a nasal mask. And everybody said, oh, bullshit. All you're doing is when the person breathes and creates negative pressure, you're countering it. With what's called positive airway pressure, the pumping of air into the airway of the lungs, which keeps them open. And so the patient breathes normally. So the only way you can get injured is to pick the machine up and smash the guy over the head with it. So this is safer than an aspirin. I'm thinking, wow. So I said to Colin, how many people do you think suffer from this? And he said, oh, I, I don't have any idea. But he said, it's at least 2% of the population. And we're coming from Baxter, which had a billion dollar business in the dialysis area, where there was less than 0.2%. So I said, gee, you know, as an MIT educated engineer, I went 0.22 billion, 10 billion. I said, even if it's only 5 billion, that's a big market. So I went back to Baxter's Respiratory Home Care Division. I funded it on Baxter's behalf, and a year later they sold off the division. I'm literally reading in this trade publication called Clinica, Baxter sells off Respiratory Home Care Division. Baxter has in his company? <laughs> Didn't they give him any warning that this was coming? No, no, no. I was only like in the top 64% of employees out of at least 6,000. But I thought, oh my God. I knew that if we didn't do something about it, that it was going to die on its bum. And a lot of people would have been let down. And I thought, you know what? I thought my time with Baxter was not likely to be that much longer because my boss got fired and he should have been. He was a cheerleader. You know, the guy put his feet up on a desk, smoked a cigar and say, how's it going, Pete? Great, Lawrence. And he'd say, keep it going. And, and then that I wouldn't see him again for three months. But then I got this snotty-nosed kid whose father was on the board of Baxter. Lester Knight was the guy. And if I had a disagreement with Lester, and I didn't have much respect for the guy, I mean, it, it, look, he was an okay guy, but, but he didn't have experience, and I suddenly ended up with him as a boss. And I thought, gee, how's that gonna work out? Probably not well for me. So I thought it's not that big a deal if we close down the Baxter Center for Medical Research and we put our efforts into ResMed. The name of this business that addresses sleep apnea. As long as I could cut a deal with Baxter. So the way it turned out is I called the president of Baxter, Jim Tobin. He was a decision maker, I'll give him that. He'd run over his grandmother if it, if it helped him. And Jim was, you know, he's a bright guy, a Harvard, I couldn't figure out how Baxter could grow the way they did because nearly all the hierarchy were Harvard MBAs. 
with no technical background. Now, I'm a great believer that if you're in a technical business, you do have to know what a pipette looks like and you've got to have been in a lab, for example. But these guys were government majors, economics majors, history majors with Harvard MBAs. And they all are. I mean, how are they making decisions, these guys? You know? Anyway, uh, they just bought American Hospital Supply for $3 billion to turn Baxter into a $5 billion company. And I'm going to them and saying, hey, this could be $10 million business in three years. And they're yawning. They, GP, great. Um, fantastic. They were yawning. And so they sold ResMed to Peter. And the first year, which was 89.90, we did a million dollars in revenues and we lost 250,000. The next year we did two million and we lost 150. So we're 400,000 in the tank. If you're building a business, you're gonna lose money. You know, you've got to spend money to make money. I was, in fact, if anything, elated it could have been half a million, you know what I mean? And then the third year we did four million and made 400,000 at the bottom line. I had no idea how big this was and it just got bigger. You could add up HIV, AIDS, malaria and so forth, add them all up and you wouldn't reach the carnage caused by undiagnosed and therefore untreated sleep apnea. 50% of men and 23% of women have it. In the US, it's around 10% have been diagnosed and therefore treated. Before ResMed, how many folks were actually being diagnosed and treated? Oh, a handful. I mean, a handful of people. I mean, it was not even a percentage. Nah, but I mean, that's, that's you know, you're going back to 1989, 30 years ago. Oh, it was, you did say, what, snort, what, snort, what, sleep, what? Huh? Our revenues are around two and a half billion. We have roughly 55% of the world's market. And people say to me, God, you think Baxter are all upset about that? I said, no. Is this another transaction? It's just another transaction and innovators, risk takers, and people with the practical knowledge to get it done, not fancy degrees from fancy schools having nothing to do with the actual product. You're listening to Dr. Peter Farrell's story, and a dear friend of mine, Tom, in Irving, Texas, Tom Tradup, well, he had had sleep apnea for the longest time, and what it did to his life and his marriage, and that this technology was around to save him, and really save his marriage, his family life, and everything else. When we come back, we're going to learn more about this remarkable story, this remarkable company, and my goodness, this really remarkable guy and what a talker he is. More with Dr. Peter Farrell, his story here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with our American stories and Dr. Peter Farrell's story of discovering a physician named Colin Sullivan who invented this crazy device to treat sleep apnea that we now know as the CPAP machine, and only because Peter brought it to the world. I mean, you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurship is about huge risk-taking. Well, entrepreneurship is about minimizing risk and seizing opportunity. It's completely the opposite. You're doing it because you think you can make it, not because you think you're going to lose your shirt. You're trying to minimize the risk of losing your shirt. And then innovation only occurs when somebody writes a check. Unless it's delivered to the marketplace and somebody says, this is solving a problem, which I think is important, and I'm going to write you a check because I think it's going to help solve the problem. That's what innovation's about. It's not about creativity and imagination. It requires creativity and imagination, otherwise you don't get to something that somebody else needs and is willing to pay for. So Colin showed me this Darfader thing with this mask that you basically had to squeeze your face in. And then you had this machine that you could have run your swimming pool on and it sounded like a freight train. And he said, I should emphasize this is a treatment, it's not a cure. The guy has to wear that every night. And I said, oh, you're kidding. He said, I'm not kidding. And he said, in fact, I'm going to bring this patient in and I want you to talk to him. His name is Eddie Merck. I said, okay. So he brings in Eddie. Eddie's about my body mass index. I'm around 25, 26 kilograms per meter squared. So in other words, he wasn't a fat bastard. So Eddie came in. He had welts on his cheeks where the mask was digging into him. And he had a bit of necrosis of the bridge of his nose where the mask was digging into him. And he walked in and I said, Eddie, Peter Farrell, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. It's obviously inconvenient, the mask. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, but, you know, a bit of Vaseline and so forth. And I said, wow. I said, the machine's like a freight train. He said, oh, yeah, well, what I did was I moved my bed to abut the garage wall. I drilled a hole in the wall between the bedroom and the garage, and I put the machine out with the car. I said, wow, this is pretty inconvenient. He said, well, okay, let me tell you what my life was like. I'd go to bed for 10 hours. I'd get up in the morning. I'd go to breakfast with my wife. I'd fall asleep. I'd nod off. I'd hop in the car. First set of traffic lights, I'd nod off. I was so sleep deprived. And then I'd go into work. I couldn't sit in a chair. I'd go into spontaneous rapid eye movement sleep, literally go into REM sleep. He said, so I spent the whole day just staying awake. I didn't do a tap of work. I said, what's the company's name? Anyway. He said I didn't do a tap of work, and then I'd drive home, falling asleep at traffic lights. I'd get home, couldn't go to the opera, a movie, out to dinner with friends, because I'd simply just immediately fall off to sleep. I'd go to bed for 10 hours and wake up feeling like and not sleeping, and that was my cycle. He said, the first night I went on this, but I dreamt for the first time in 15 years, and he said, I got up in the morning, I didn't fall asleep at breakfast, I drove into work without falling asleep at the traffic lights one night, and he said, and I was able to work for the first time in years. Again, I said, what's the name of the company? Anyway, um, and then I drove home without falling asleep. He said, bottom line, I'd sleep on hot coals if I could have that result. I said, okay. So this thing, this gargantuan Rube Goldberg thing actually works. And I looked at it and I said, you know, in six months we can have something that's, well, a fifth the size, a tenth of the noise levels, and that's exactly what we did. We've got a device today called an Air Mini, which weighs 0.7 pounds. 
Not even your dog can hear it. But the device is literally that big. It's like a grande cappuccino. That's saving something much bigger. Couples being able to sleep in the same bed. I mean, snoring is just so off-putting. You can't sleep next to somebody who's going... I mean, it's, it's not the next bedroom, it's the next zip code. It's really bad. So it breaks up more marriages than financial and adultery and all the rest of it. I mean, it's hugely significant. The four main causes of death are cardiac disease, cancer, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and stroke in that order. Sleep disorder breathing affects all of them. Stroke, 75% of patients that have had a stroke have sleep disorder breathing. Was it causal? We don't have enough data to know. But you know what? If you've got, had the stroke and you don't treat the sleep disorder breathing, you're not gonna get out of rehab. You're gone. COPD, a third of the patients. There are 320 million people roughly in the country. 10% of them have COPD. And 30% of those have sleep disorder breathing. And if you have COPD with sleep apnea, you're gonna be in for an acute exacerbation and you may not get out and you'll be back in, in 30 days unless you get it treated. Cancer, we have in vitro data, lab data, and we have animal data, and we have prospective clinical data showing that if you have a solid tumor, I think it applies to blood-borne tumors like leukemias and lymphomas, we just don't have the data. If you have a solid tumor like colorectal, breast, prostate, lung, etc., if you have severe sleep apnea, your time to death is reduced by 80%. 80. So in other words, let's say colorectal cancer. From diagnosis to death is roughly an average of five years. There'll be early deaths, late deaths, it's like a Gaussian distribution. If you have severe sleep apnea, it's one year. One year. And we know the mechanism. Cancer likes a low oxygen and a low pH, an acidic environment with low oxygen. That's what cancer likes so it can grow. So you take cancer cells in a lab and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen, the cancer cells go nuts. And there is a, a mouse model, a guy, David Gazal at the University of Chicago, he's got these little black mice which live two years domestically. Give them melanoma, it's about a year. You take that melanoma colony into a lab and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen. A matter of weeks, they're all dead. And the same happens in humans. And then you've got heart disease. 50% of patients with heart disease, any form of it, have sleep disorder breathing. I mean, you go like this on the heart. Imagine what it's doing to your heart. It's the number one cause of high blood pressure. Untreated sleep apnea is the number one cause, and that's on the NIH website, and it's been there for 13 years. You'd think you'd be manning the barriers. Peter is 76 years old, and I wondered if he had a sense of urgency about these literally life and death matters that the world doesn't know about and the lives and money that could be saved with this simple treatment. Well, I think you do. I mean, I, you know, but there's no point in beating your head against a brick wall. You just sort of keep going.
and try to get the word out. I mean, that's all you can do, you know. But it is, um, it's underappreciated and I feel like a missionary. I mean, it's, it's crazy that in this day and age that something as simple as sleep disordered breathing is not being addressed. Our main goal was education. And great job on that, Alex and Joey. And what a story. And again, we love to tell these stories about better health care at lower costs. And always, innovators are out there, entrepreneurs are out there solving problems. And Dr. Farrell was dead right uh, that in the end, our entrepreneurs are risk mitigators. And they don't want to lose their capital, and they want to solve a problem. And all that creativity is harnessed to solve that problem A great story, Dr. Peter Farrell's story, and sleep apnea, and the solution to sleep apnea here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories, and now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica. In 2012, for reasons known only to Providence, I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at 9 in the morning and his editor tells him he needs on his desk by 12 o'clock at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task and it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad. I thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town. And the reason he was at the thrift store 
was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki color chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So, I said, what did you pay for it? $15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old, negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another, and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what, and I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter, and I started to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm gonna go through the list some of them are a little redundant. In fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now, for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power chords. Two, no chords connecting to a printer. Three, no cords connecting to an external hard drive. Four, no cords connecting to anything. Five, no software to install. Six, no software to download. Ten, a typewriter can't crash. Eleven, no fatal system error messages. 24, no font to choose. 25, no font color to choose, unless you have a two-tone ribbon. 26, no font size to choose. 27, 
you don't have to format your font. 29. No print button to push. 33. No leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. 34. The typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39. I like baseball. Shirley Povich used the typewriter. Need I say more? Forty. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the internet for all the world to see whether you wanted to or not. Typewriters are secure and private. Forty-one. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They are not always correct anyway. 51. If you are working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key, you won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. Fifty-three, no mouse. Fifty-six, you don't get interrupted with emails. Fifty-seven, no one tries to friend you. Sixty-seven, when I am working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. Seventy-one, when I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely if ever do, you take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell, rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy, even if you're not old. 79. You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83. If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it, and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote-unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. Another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. 
You never have to reboot your typewriter. And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica. 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer. I still have one. I don't use it, but my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, the, the envelope is typed. He is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago, but my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy in the business for 50-plus years and a legend. He sent us... 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer here on Our American Stories. 